Let's read our passage together, Ephesians chapter 5. I have an outline, and uh, it's obviously very crammed. I made it, took me over an hour to get this to fit on two pages, cutting out precious little things that I didn't want to lose. But anyway, I didn't want to get into stapling. So what this has is it has reproduced the entire text uh, in the ESV. I'm actually going to read the passage in the New King James Version. And then we will go down the outline and just get ourselves familiar with the lay of the land here in Ephesians chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints." Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them." For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light, is the correct reading there, not the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the light is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their wives, their own wives rather, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, and I would truncate the verse at that point, of his flesh and of his bones is a gloss that does not belong. Mm -hmm. We'll explain why. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, Let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Mm -hmm. 
Now, just for a couple of minutes at the beginning, I want to review just generally some things about the Epistle to the Ephesians that we discussed in our first four meetings as we looked in chapters one through four. Ephesians divides into two equal halves, the first three and the last three. The first three are about our position in Christ, and the second three, that is the last three chapters, four, five, and six, are are about our practice in the Lord. So it goes from positional truth to practical truth, which is typical of Paul. It goes from being in Christ to being under the lordship of Christ. Mm -hmm. So we see that shift from Christ to the Lord as we move from chapter 3 into chapter 4. Chapter 1 introduced us to the wonders of the Trinity working on our behalf. And those of you who are here, hearing Phil Coulson recently on this, will remember this. And it's interesting that triplets occur throughout Ephesians, and we'll pay attention to those because all of the virtues that God calls us to typically are couched in threes, reminding us of a father who chose us, of a son who redeemed us, and of a spirit who sealed us. And this theme from chapter 1 will continue throughout the whole epistle. A very important point in Ephesians is unity, because the great mystery in chapter 3 is that the Gentiles are going to be fellow heirs with the Jews. The fact that Gentiles would be believers, that the Messiah of Israel would bring salvation to the Gentiles, was not a mystery. That was well explained in the Old Testament. But that God would make one new organism out of his chosen people, the Jews and the Gentiles, and that they would be fellow heirs and partakers of the same promise was not known in the Old Testament. And so the unity, those who were near, the Jews, those who were afar off, the Gentiles, are brought nigh, and they are together made into one new man. This is thrilling truth. This is amazing, and it is some of the highest truth in the the entire New Testament. So chapter 1 reminds us of our wonderful position in Christ. Chapter 2, which we're all familiar with, introduced us to the subject of salvation by grace through faith. It's the same salvation for a Jew or a Gentile. Mm -hmm. Both of them are equally distant from God. But dispensationally, there is a difference because the Jews were near and the Gentiles were far. And yet God also healed that rift, bringing the two together into one new organism. We find out that Christ is our peace and that Christ is our cornerstone. And in chapter 3, Paul then elaborates more about this wonderful mystery that God is creating one new man out of out of um, two, out of the Jew and out of the Gentile. So, so much for the first three chapters. Chapter four is really part of what we're talking about tonight, so we must be careful Mm -hmm. to integrate some of the background of four into our study of five. Indeed, the chapter division is unfortunate. As always, all chapter divisions are unfortunate. Mm -hmm. But this one, we're going to have to back up a little bit into chapter four to understand why he says, be imitators of God as dear children. Now, in chapter 4, as my outline starts here, I talk about the appeal to maintain unity through diversity in the assembly. Right above that, I did mention the five times in the epistle that the word walk is used. Now, sometimes Christians are called upon to run. We are to run the race that is before us with endurance, right? That's Hebrews chapter 12. Paul talks about running a race in 1 Corinthians 9. He talks in Galatians about potentially having run in vain. He tells, to the Gal- he tells the Galatians as well, who tripped you up? You were running well. And so many times running is a metaphor for what we do, a marathon. We're in this for the long haul, and we're heading and sprinting toward 
a prize. But walking is very, very suggestive. And I don't like new translations that say living or dumb it down in that way because the metaphor is way too suggestive to lose, okay? Because we begin a walk at a starting point. It's called the narrow gate. And we traverse a pathway to a destination because when you walk, you walk somewhere. And that pathway we take is the difficult, constrained road of the Christian life. Yes, it is difficult. Christ said it would be difficult. But it heads toward eternal life and heaven, a goal. And often when people are walking, they have a companion along the way, and we have a companion in our walk, Mm -hmm. the Lord himself. So let's not lose that wonderful metaphor of walking. We are to walk worthily. All these walks occur in 4, 5, and 6, okay? So we're to walk worthily of the calling with which we have been called at the beginning of chapter 4. And then, as you see, at the middle of chapter 4, he says we should not be walking as the Gentiles walk. That's a walk we don't want to be involved with. No walking as the Gentiles walk. And then we'll have three walks in our chapter, chapter 5. First of all, we are to walk in love. Then we are to walk as children of the light. And then we are to walk accurately, carefully. So outlining the chapter is a piece of cake because I just Mm -hmm. have to use the three walks, which is what I did. Crammed a few more items in there, but basically that's our outline, okay? Now, at the beginning of chapter 4, we're reminded that God is very interested in unity. And then as we move into our chapter, he's interested in a new morality. That's the word I chose. We could have said spirituality, we could have said holiness, but there is a new morality that marks this one body that God has made, this mystical organism made up of Jew and Gentile, this one new man which is trying to achieve the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God will bring it there. But we as Christians need to participate in that today in our local assemblies Mm -hmm. and in our personal lives. So we said at the beginning of chapter 4 that we are endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He said, as you recall, there's one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, right? So we have one, 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 one. We have all these things in common. So God has designed the diversity of his people to work toward a unity in the faith. And he sent people into the world to help with this. They're called apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And these are gifts of Christ to the church to bring us into maturity and to help us to grow into that one perfect man and to achieve the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now we move into our section here, which is, of course, the new morality among the members to walk in unity, love, purity, light, and wisdom. And I don't want to say a lot about the outline. Let's just get into the discussion. But just to familiarize ourselves with what is here, we walk in love that is introduced in the first two verses, and we are to imitate God the Father and God the Son. And we'll talk about that. But immediately he moves into what does not constitute walking in love. Walking in love should never be confused with walking in lust, Mm -hmm. which is what the Gentiles do, the Gentiles being the term for what we were before we were saved, right? And so there's a confusion here in the world between what love is and what lust is. Children of light also should never walk in this way. And so he begins by talking about impure language and then the resultant practice, which, if it is a practice in one's life, is sure proof 
but that person has never been born again. Then he moves to walking in light in, in verse 8, and he points out several interesting things. Light brings life. It produces fruit, the fruit of the light. Light clarifies what is wrong. Light exposes as well. And light has an evangelistic appeal. It confronts the darkness. And we're going to talk about how our lives ought to be sermons in themselves, even before a word is spoken. Mm -hmm. Third, we move into the section to walk accurately. And I submit this really goes to the end of verse 9 of Scott's chapter, chapter 6. Mm -hmm. This is accurate walking. And in this case, <clears throat> there are several key items right at the beginning. First of all, those who walk accurately will redeem the time. They will pay what it costs to get the time to do what they need to do for God, no matter what the cost. And it is a big cost. They are going to give up their ideas and they're going to, pers to pursue the will of God in their lives mm -hmm. as the most important goal. And they're going to make sure that they do this under the control of his spirit. So they're going to follow this command to be being filled or keep being filled with the spirit of God. And of course, there's much we want to say about that. Those who are walking accurately are filled with the spirit. Those who are filled with the spirit are marked by one word that, that carries us through the rest of the section. And that's the word submission. And we're going to discover that submission is not just limited to the obedience of one who is under another in the hierarchy of God. But submission is a bigger concept because there's a true sense in which the husband is also submitting by his servant leadership. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't say wives submit and then husbands lead. It doesn't say that. It says wives submit and husbands love because we're going to understand that love is a word of submission. Mm -hmm. Submission carries all the way down through the rest of my chapter and into the family relationships and the work relationships of chapter 6. So that will be all... I think, fruitful for discussion. In the midst of this <clears throat> husband and wife section, we get some amazing truth about Christ and the church. Another mystery, another review of this one body, but also the concept of the bride. So we're going to see mm -hmm. that there are two different arguments for why husbands ought to love their wives, because Christ loved the, the church as his wife, and Christ nourishes and cherishes the church as his body. So we're going to enjoy those metaphors together again. And with that, I think I will sit down. Anyone who has any interest in helping us with the general background of 4, 5, and 6, welcome to do that at the beginning. Otherwise, we're going to move right into verse 1. I think it's helpful, uh, especially for the young, to remind ourselves again why these books are laid out in this way, where we have, in this case, three chapters of doctrinal uh, uh, foundational truth, and then we have three chapters of practice. We call it practical because it's practicing. How do we? How does this affect my life, and how does it affect my relationships? <clears throat> Think about uh, something you might uh, say you're going to run a 5K or a 10K. This is the time of year where people do the turkey trot, and so you, you don't just go out and run this thing, right? I mean, you could easily read, this is how you do it. You go from here to here. It's easy to, it should be easy, right? No, it's not easy unless you train. Right? You have to train. You spend months training. I know this from experience. I trained a lot to run a 5K. I don't run very well. And then I didn't run for five weeks because I was sick. And I went and tried to run a 5K and I walked most of it. Okay, so the first three chapters are preparation of the believer to be able to walk without the foundational truth. So you can't just, as much as it's nice to go right to chapters four, five, and six because it tells you what to do, 
you don't, you're not empowered, you're not prepared or equipped to behave as chapters 4, 5, and 6 exhort us unless you understand who you are in Christ, unless you understand the basis of your salvation and how you relate to other believers. So that's why these books are laid out in this way, just a good reminder that while this is practical, you can't skip the doctrinal. You have to understand it or else it's like the law, right? You can't just go out and live a spiritual life without having spirit empowerment. The law was weak because of the flesh, right? And our flesh is weak. So just a good reminder of why we're, we're in the practical, but it's foundationally based on the doctrinal. Thank you. That's excellent, Jeff. <clears throat> Maybe what we'll do now is read the last few verses of chapter 4. Mm-hmm. This is a section about not grieving the Spirit of God. And he says in verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Now, when we talk about God is love and walking in love, we could say there's lots of different ways we could imitate God. But contextually, imitating God means forgiving. <laughs> that's what it means. Because that's the subject we come out of chapter 4 discussing. God in Christ forgave you, therefore you ought to be those who forgive others as imitators of God. God is your father, you are beloved children. Children imitate their parents, sons imitate their fathers, and so we are to be the same way with our Heavenly Father, acting as he would act and doing what he would do. Can you help us with the word imitate as opposed to the King James following? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the word is mimetai, or uh, mimetase in the singular, which is uh, very much where we get our word mimic from, right? And this was an important uh, word in in Greek culture, of course, because of the theater in Greek culture. Um, That was an actor, and of course actors can be hypocrites, which is another word from the Greek stage. But we're not asking to be those who just do the outward form or pretend. We're supposed to have that, obviously, that love in our hearts that makes us want to forgive just as we have been forgiven. And in that sense, we mimic God. So in, in verse 1, the way we're imitating is um, to love how Christ loved, which was sacri- sacrificially. And that sacrificial love was, uh, the response to God was it was, a, it was a fragrant offering to God. When God saw his willingness to, to lay down his life for us, uh, it was a fragrant offering. And so I think that's, kind of hinted at here, that when we love like Christ, and we love uh, sacrificially, and, and then, then to God, it's a fragrant uh, offering to, um, in, his, in, his size, in his sight to see us uh, loving in a self-sacrificing way. This is expressing the family DNA of believers. We ought to look like our father. Um, in most of our, our cases, we look like both of our parents. I think my wife showed me something the other day that said, I opened my mouth and my mother came out. Well, we can laugh at that, but the fact of the matter is, is that that is what is expected uh, in humans. And it's what's expected in 
Christianity, mm -hmm. that we are to look like our Father. And actually, verse 24 um, of chapter 4 reminds us that we are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Mm -hmm. And so this is reminding us that in conversion, we have been restored. Image has never been lost, mm -hmm. but we're being restored morally into his likeness. And in verse 1 here, we're referred to as dear or beloved children. Mm -hmm. um, I think we all, if we've lived any length of time, have looked at families where the father was, well, as the man in that, who, who, who did that recent song, or it's not all that recent anymore, um, if I can only imagine. He called his father a monster. And the last thing he wanted to be like was like his father. But children that are genuinely loved of the father... It's not long before you see behavior in the child that is very much patterned after that father. So that's what Paul is reminding us here. Constantly be to remember that we are loved of God. And that makes it a whole lot easier to imitate him. Mm -hmm. And the motive should be the same as Christ's, which is to be a sweet aroma to God in our lives. Psychologists tell us yeah. it's a good idea to forgive people because it's good for you. Mm -hmm. And of course it may be good for you. It's good for the person you're forgiving. I suppose that's true as well. So as far, so good. That's two for two. But <clears throat> there's a higher calling and a higher reason to forgive because it is sweet to God. It's worshipful to God. God appreciates it when his people heal their wounds and when they mend these kinds of things that lead to strife between brothers and sisters and have, are of a forgiving spirit. Yeah, this is an expression of worship, isn't it? Because if you go back to the book of Exodus, I forget whether it's 14 or 15 times, there's the sweet-smelling savor. It's always linked with the, with the inner sanctuary and the worship of God. So this is not only imitating him, but it's expressing uh, his values in our doing so. Is that reflected in the fact that Christ gave himself for us, but he gave himself to God? And then it was actually an act of worship on his part. Do you see, Joe, a difference between the offering and the sacrifice in that regard? Um, yeah. Like a, <clears throat> the burnt offering aspect of the first word? Right. It refers back to the offerings and mm -hmm. the fact that the, what you're referring to, the burnt offering was all for God mm -hmm. and, and, and nothing for the, the offerer. I see. Yeah, some have made this sort of a dependent clause that the offering is marked by sacrifice and fragrance. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if that's necessary. But um. but I think we can distinguish these, these words. <clears throat> Some people want to make this a, what's called a hendiatus, right. which means that the offering and sacrifice are saying the same thing. Right. A sacrificial offering, in other words. But that's not necessary because there, there really are two nuances here. Hmm. I think a sacrifice is a more specific term, and it's usually a blood sacrifice in Bible mm -hmm. terms, right? Mm -hmm. But the offering could be even bloodless. It could be like yeah. a meal offering. Right. So... The offering, I think, is Christ himself, and it's giving himself to God in the sense of the burnt offering. But we're reminded that in that sweet smell, there was also another thing that was accomplished at the cross, and that was the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And so he gave himself a sacrifice. Yes, it was to God, but it was for our behalf, on our behalf. I like that. So back to the word uh, imitators again. The way you would imitate somebody you would have to know their actions. You'd have to study them. Otherwise, you couldn't imitate them, right? And so what he's saying here is the way we're going to be imitators of God is to study 
how God acts. And that's exactly what he says. As Christ loved us and gave himself as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the only way we're going to be imitators of God is if we're students of God, right? Students of Christ, understanding the Gospels, understanding how God has treated us, how God treats people, how God interacts within the Godhead. So to imitate, you have to understand and study. Christ gave himself in, in many different verses in the New Testament. We're reminded, of course, that he gave himself for all in 1 Timothy chapter 2 because he is interested in the salvation of all men. So he gave himself on behalf of all mm. or for all. In our book here, we're reminded of that he gave himself for the church. So every member of that church, Christ personally gave himself for all those people in the past, present, and the future. But here he says he gave himself for you. And assuming we're talking about Ephesians, he's writing to, he's, talk, he's narrowing it down a little bit further. And he's saying, look, Christ gave himself for each one of you. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're familiar with Galatians 2.20. He gave himself for me. Mm-hmm. So we see these concentric circles from all to the whole church, to just you folks, to me. All these can be appreciated in Christ giving himself. Well, we must move on as much as we have reluctance to do so because we now must plunge into some difficult territory here as we're talking about distinguishing love from what the world does, which is primarily lust. And we're not saying that love doesn't exist in the world and family love does not exist among unbelievers. We're not saying that at all. What we're saying is that in any degraded heart, in any sinner's heart, love easily degenerates into lust. And instead of being sacrificial, it becomes entirely selfish. And instead of being fruitful, it becomes unfruitful. Mm-hmm. And so Paul must discuss this. And he begins not so much with the acts themselves, but with discussion mm-hmm. of the acts. Mm-hmm. Or the idea that these could be bandied about in some sort of neutral or even affirming way among Christians. And that is completely squashed by, this mm-hmm. verse, by these next verses. I think that if you wanted to say something about this overall section, I would just say this, that there is a short path from talking about something to doing it. In fact, if you, I'm looking at the ESV now, but it must not even be named or talked about approvingly among you. And he talks about immorality and impurity and covetousness. Those three things are repeated later on. And it's not people who are talking about it, but that everyone who is immoral, impure, and covetous. So do you see the point? He's linking what you talk about with what you ultimately become. And I think that's the danger in our world today. We've created this sort of compartmentalization in our minds to say, I can, I can laugh at Jimmy Kimmel, and I can, I can laugh at that sort of impurity. I can sing along with things on the radio or on YouTube but that somehow my life is in a different compartment. What this says is, no, it isn't. And we must, with vigorous diligence, guard our mouths and guard our minds, because the next step is to participate in it. Mm -hmm. Dave, could you um, give us some light then on why the term named is used here? And And I'm asking that somewhat loaded. 
because mm-hmm. I, I, have, I have thought for some time that it was the idea of being identified among you. Somebody was looking from the outside and saying, you got somebody among you that's so marked in their behavior. A behavior then that Paul shows in two verses down is inconsistent with those in the kingdom. What is it then about name that you feel just is speaking about it? Well, I think the word name does not mean to mention in any setting or in any respect because Paul just did name it. So he'd be yeah. refuting his own idea if he said, don't name it, and then he named it. It's to name with approval. It's to consider something that is either a suitable subject for discussion, at the worst neutral, and at the best authentic. It's the same kind of talk that we get today among liberal Christians who want to be affirming places and to be, you know, uh, y'all are welcome here, right? So they have no discrimination between what God loves and what God hates. God always loves the sinner, but God hates the sin. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we do not talk with approval about what God hates. It's we're, we're, we're so um, immersed because of the media possibilities today in sin that we're completely insensitive to this in our consciences. All of us are way far away from where they ought to be. And I can say that of you because I know it's true of me. It's almost beyond what we can help because we are immersed in this ambient pornography right. of even just the news. Uh, when I'm, you understand what I mean by that? Right. The images that people see in their regular uh, you know, news feed would have been considered pornographic years ago. Um, I remember sitting in the 1970s in a Bible reading on Romans 1, in this assembly right in this room, and Mr. Barr said, <clears throat> the second part of this chapter is for your private reading. We are not going to read it out loud. At that time, to even read the second part of Romans 1 out loud was considered indecent. So we've come a long way from that. And so any joking about homosexuality or about um, adultery and any enjoyment of it in the media is a perversion of what we ought to be as Christians. I think there might, Stu, to come back to your question again, there might be some ambivalence or some ambiguity in this. It might be that it should not be found among us. Or talked about with approval. I'm, I'm not totally clear that you have to choose one or the other. I, I actually think that you might be able to see both. What is 1 Corinthians 5 about? It, it's about the fact that a man existed among them who behaved this way and that they gloried in it. So I would argue that 1 Corinthians 5 is the explanation of this particular text. Mm-hmm. So at verse 1 is really defining what love is and and to walk in love is to love, to, to walk self-sacrificially. Um, <clears throat> everything from three to six, then, is not love. So everything okay. under the umbrella of sexual immorality, which is any sexual intimacy outside the bonds of marriage, is not love. Right. And I think that's very relevant today because the whole, especially the whole LGBTQ movement is uses love as a motto. Love is love is the, the latest one, right? And so it's all about them expressing their love. And according to the word of God here, that is not love. Right. In fact, it incurs the wrath of God down in verse 6. And that's helpful when we think about how the Bible actually defines what love is, right? What is love? Well, love is sacrificing myself 
for the highest blessing of somebody else. The problem is that what Joel's been describing not only destroys the other person, it destroys you. In fact, that's what goes on in our world. That's what Romans 1 is about. It's mutually assured destruction, to take an old Reagan-esque uh, mm-hmm. expression. It destroys everybody in the room. And so even their use of the word love is a perversion of the scripture because what is true love? Well, Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Right. Blesses him, blesses us. So what Dave mentioned about uh, what you talk about, or maybe it was Dan, what you talk about you eventually do. Uh, <clears throat> keep in mind that we have, one of the enemies we have within us is the flesh. And when we were saved, God didn't take away the flesh. Uh, the, the flesh will eventually be removed, but we have the flesh, and it responds, it desires sin, it responds to sin. And so when we talk about these kind of things, when we allow our minds to dwell on these kind of things, it feeds the flesh, Right? And when you feed the flesh, it's very dangerous because the flesh gets stronger. And so we, uh, we cannot uh, give food to the flesh because we all have it and we all respond to this kind of thing. And so that's why the apostle, he's, he's very practical. This, is, this was a problem 2,000 years ago as it is today. The believers still uh, had to, be, to guard themselves against the world around them because the world was no better, no worse. Satan was still... The God of this world back then, he still is today. And so we have to be extremely vigilant to guard our own minds and our mouths so that we don't feed the flesh. And as verse 6 indicates, it seems evident that there were individuals infiltrating the believers and they were encouraging or at least trying to affirm a loose lifestyle. Let no man deceive you with vain words. So people were trying to, if nothing else, justify their own behavior and affect others to do the same, which when you get somebody else to do the same as you, that justifies yourself. So this whole business of uh, not only the actual loose living, but speaking about it in a favorable way, Paul says, watch out, it'll deceive you. He talks about foolishness, or filthiness, I should say, foolish talk, and what, uh, what the ESV calls crude joking. I, I think the word crude is better fit in with the second one, the foolish talking. I think the third one is not necessarily crude. It's very, very sophisticated. Mm-hmm. It's the one, it's the stand-up comedy. It's the uh, double entendre, the, the two, two meanings, you know, the clever stuff. Then there's the ribald stuff, and there's the filthy stuff. All of these things need to be far away from Christian thought, talk, and life. Remember where this heading, where this chapter is heading, the mystery of Christ and the church. Remember that anything that is not heterosexual with a man and a woman is an abomination to God. Anything that is not monogamous is an abomination to God because Christ loved the church exclusively. Anything that is not lifelong is an abomination to God. So anything that detracts from monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong marriage Mm -hmm. is anathema and should not be talked with with approval or enjoyed on the screen by any of us, really. That's the challenge to us. And and it's so bad because it's not just wrong. It's not just against the nature of God, but it's defaming and putting down the hope of Christ and his church. That's right. the way it's the underlying 
y'all mean by these are, this is something that if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to live a life like Dave just mentioned because it's honoring to him and it's completely dishonoring him to do anything else. And ultimately, it's going to be a marker of your true spiritual condition. And this is the place where everybody swallows hard because they don't like it. But he is teaching here that if this is a persistent thing in your life, if this is the lifelong character that you portray, then you are not saved. And that you are, to use this expression that we have here, you are a son of disobedience and wrath will fall on you. Now, we understand that moral sin certainly can be an accident in the life of a believer. We understand that. The Bible makes room for that. There are processes to deal with that. But when it is persistent, you have no right to claim to be a child of God. And this is, a, I think, something we have to think very long and hard about. People say, well, it, it doesn't really matter. It's just what I, you know, it's just the way I talk. But actually, it's idolatry. And wherever idolatry is seen, that's a very, very dangerous thing. All of these things promote pleasing self rather than pleasing God. And really, I would argue that the greatest religion in North America today is actually the, the idolatry of worshiping self instead of God. And I won't develop that, but, but clearly self is a false religion. So in 70 says, do not therefore be a partner or a partaker with them. <clears throat> and this is just another one of those sage lessons that I think we all need to, to learn and to remind ourselves of. It's very important that you watch the company you keep. Yes. Uh, there are, you know, Samson goes down to the vineyard of Timnah. What's a Nazarite doing there? That's dangerous. Samson, but Samson didn't care. And look where that led. And so when we go into places or we expose ourselves to things that are going to induce this sort of sin, we're being foolish. Rather than leaving ourselves with nothing to do or occupying a vacuum, we ought to seek out our people. We ought to seek out the people of God. We ought to seek out wholesome companions and not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. Psalm 1. But to delight in the law of the Lord and with all those who love the Lord. So I think that's an important point as we choose our friends. Yeah, this is not an argument for isolationism. How on earth could we ever be effective in the gospel or evangelism? It's not separation from sinners per se. It's separation from their sinful ways. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to come back and reinforce what Dave says. I, I love the word partner here mm -hmm. because I, I just speak for my own life. Um, I'm getting to a place in life where I've lived long enough that I look back and I am tracing God's ways with me. And one of the greatest blessings that God has done, and some of these men that are sitting up here at the table, I don't, I'm not trying to embarrass them or myself, but just to say this. I've been blessed over most of my life with a bunch of godly men that I count as peers and as my dearest friends. And they have been nothing but a blessing to me. They've never tried to pull me into sin or try to pull me away from the assembly. And I'm just saying in a very personal and maybe emotional way, I'm grateful to God for these men right here because they have been the kind of companions and partners that have blessed me all my life. We love you too, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. Just to complete the loop. I just want to comment on, on verse 6. I think it's very... 
again, relevant to, to today, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Mm-hmm. Our culture today is very deceived because the sins uh, from three to, to five are, are being normalized, meaning mm-hmm. any sexual activity outside of marriage is, is, not, is being taken out of a moral category. It's just what humans do. And, and there's nothing immoral about it unless there's a lack of consent. That's the only sin today is a lack of consent. But any activity between individuals uh, is not a, a moral issue. And, and what Paul is saying is don't be deceived. It is a moral issue. And, and God's wrath comes on, on such activity. Actually, this is going to have an important tie over into Scott's chapter when it comes to the discipline of children. Why does the devil say that you cannot spank children? He denies that anyone has the authority to carry out discipline or judgment on others. And don't kid yourself about this. This is not just some cultural argument that we're having. This is a demonic attack on God's authority to carry out justice in the case of sin. So we're being introduced. Scott, we'll come back to that in your reading, but I think it's being introduced here. So we're going to summarize this first section We are to love and to walk in love as beloved children, and we are to do things in our lives that ascend up to God as a sweet aroma. We are not to participate in discussions, approval, or certainly not activities that will bring the wrath of God from heaven down upon us, all right? The wrath of God comes down. That's not the right thing for a Christian. We want the aroma to go up. We walk in love as dear children, but we walk in light as holy ones, Mm -hmm. because he introduced another term for us here in this section, saints, befitting saints, holy ones. Mm -hmm. And so now we're going to move into verse 8 through 14. We are imitators of God again, walking as children of light and confronting the darkness, because God is not only love, but God is light. And so we want to talk a little bit about this. It's interesting, uh, Colossians tells us Where we were, we were in the kingdom of darkness, and we have been delivered Mm -hmm. from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Mm -hmm. But Ephesians tells us not where we were, but what we were. Mm -hmm. You were once darkness, darkness personified. So that's even more uh, striking. And yet, because of the gospel, you are now light in the Lord. And just simply the fact that it says light in the Lord mm-hmm. is uh, showing that to live accordingly shows your submission. It's not just light in Christ. Yes, Christ is light. But mm-hmm. for us as believers, responsibility is involved to reflect that light in honoring and submitting to him as Lord. Actually, this whole section that we're going to look at here has to do with lordship. I, mm-hmm. The names of God and the names of Christ are never accidental in Scripture. They're always given deliberately to teach a lesson. We're going to get to headship and the submission of headship. But we're going to look in this section for quite a ways here. We're going to look at the submission to lordship. And that's a very important subject that we need to to look at. So I just want to reinforce this idea that we're not at headship yet. We're still at lordship where God has the right to command. Mm -hmm. He'd already spoken of a kingdom. Interesting, it is kingdom of Christ and of God. But if you're in that kingdom, then you should own it, him rather as Lord. Right. 
verse 9, we learn that the light, the fruit of light, produces goodness, righteousness, and truth. Uh, and I was just thinking, as a practical matter, this is a good way to judge something that we might see or do. Does it produce these things? Is it comprised of these things? Goodness, righteousness, and truth. And if it doesn't, then it's not a fruit of the light. This week I was looking at this and wondering if there's any other place in Scripture that you have these put together, what is right and true and good. I only found one other instance in the whole Bible where these three are united. And it happens to be back in the book of Nehemiah, and it talks about God coming down from Mount Sinai, and he gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes. And it's just interesting to me because it casts me back to verse 1, being an Mm -hmm. imitator of God. What God has given in fruit to us is to be displayed in fruit now from us, imitating God. And this is a triplet, so reminding us of the many triplets in this epistle. Goodness, moral excellence, uh, rightness or righteousness would be integrity. Truth would be honesty. So these are three practical fruits that come from the light, from walking in the light. We should be people who are not just passingly okay when it comes to moral issues, but are morally excellent. We should be people of integrity, whose word is gold. We should be people of honesty. These are, what, these are the kinds of characters that characteristics, I should say, that are true of God, and they ought to be true of God's dear children and of God's holy ones who are walking in the light. The light produces fruit, Just as in the natural world, light is essential for fruit, so in the spiritual world. And we're given a different metaphor of what God enjoys. Instead of now a sweet sweet smell, Mm -hmm. we now have sweet fruit. And this is not, allows for no passivity. I, I love this last expression, and I think this is the way most modern translations handle it. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, later on, when we get down to verse 17, we're going to understand that you can know what the mind of God is. Mm-hmm. You very much can know. It doesn't need to be a mysterious quest. The mind of God is available to you, and we'll talk about exactly where that's found, your Bible. But this implies that pleasing God, I'm not just going to please God passively. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to strive for it. So I like this idea that trying to discern, this ought to be what mm-hmm. I do every morning, when my feet hit the floor, <coughs> try and seek in that day, in that moment, what is pleasing to him. Dave, um, this is your second point under the section that you've identified as our relationship to unbelievers. Um, I just want to reemphasize that, uh, that we're not just speaking in general settings here. So where you are, whether you're a student in school or whether you're in employment somewhere or you're just behaving in your neighborhood, when people interact with you that have become familiar with you, do they recognize this quality of goodness, of this moral excellence, I think was the word you used, David, mm-hmm. and righteousness, are you seen as an upright person? And this last one, truth, if I could just coin it, truthfulness. Do, do people know that they can believe what you're saying? that you can promise something and carry through with it. Those kind of things in, in, in commerce, in industry, between people, it's more competition than proving yourself a benefit to somebody. So it's really very three very practical terms and 
qualities that should mark the distinction of a believer in an ungodly world. Mm -hmm. Steve said we shouldn't miss Christ as we're going through here. And I was thinking in this expression, seeking those things which please him, uh, trying to discern what pleases the Lord. I was thinking of uh, what came to mind is John 8 and 29. The Lord Jesus said, And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So the Lord Jesus was 100%. His life was pleasing to God. So if we wanted to discern those things in our life that would please God, it would be when we live, when, as Paul said, for me to live as Christ. As we become Christ-like and are conformed to the image of God's Son, we will be pleasing him. Because he was the ultimate example. He said, I do always those things which, which please him. David, can you elaborate on the word testing or proving? How, how exactly do we do that? I think the idea is the same in Romans 12, right? Yeah. Uh, where we approve what is that good and perfect will of God. And it's to approve by testing with the idea of finding out really from the scripture what pleases God and making sure that our definition of what is pleasing to God as we think of it squares with what the Bible says. I actually am not that much against those yellow bracelets that said, what would Jesus do? Because it does remind us that we should ask that question. Mm -hmm. Our standard should be high enough that what would the Lord think of this is indeed our standard. Anything less than that is not good enough Mm -hmm. because we're supposed to be doing what we're doing to please the Lord. The problem with that bracelet, though, is it's very subjective. And a lot of people assume that Jesus would do a lot of things that Jesus would never have done, in my opinion. So I think we should have put, what did Jesus do? That would be a much better study than what would Jesus do? But nevertheless, I'm getting back to your question, although I appreciate your thoughts on it as well. We have to have criteria. We have to have standards by which we know something is pleasing or not to God. And that standard must be his word. So we approve, we prove and test everything in our lives and all of our plans by do they pass spiritual muster. Right. What did you, do you have that? Something else in mind? No, exactly yeah. the same. There has okay. to be a reference point, and that's mm-hmm. the Holy Scripture. Right. That's the only way to prove to make exactly. to do the acid test that it would have mm-hmm. the proper materials, and that's the Bible. Mm-hmm. And is there a sense too that this isn't? I mean, it's proving what is it as <clears throat> well pleasing to the Lord? Okay, that's between you and the Lord. But this is in the middle of context where you're being seen to be distinct in the world, mm-hmm. and it'll lead down to this business of manifesting and exposing evil by the way you live. Um, and really, that's true. You know, people tell conversion stories sometimes. Why did they ever become interested in becoming a believer? It's because of why the way somebody else they knew behaved. And their behavior was such that it made them realize, hey, I'm missing something. And not only am I missing something, I am not honoring God. So when we live like this, we are proving to others what is really pleasing to God. And hopefully that'll be just, if nothing else, a little chain in the link that wakes somebody up. I agree with that. The Lord Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds. Not hear your good words. 
see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, I think it was St. Francis who said, preach the gospel and use words when necessary. Uh, I love that and I hate it. Right, exactly. I love it and I hate it. I love it because it's basically teaching what we're teaching here, that your words are useless and worthless. You might as well just shut up if you don't have a life to go behind what you're saying because you're a bad advertisement. But if you, so that life is very, very important. And that's the, that is the context here, letting your good works, your, the goodness and the righteousness and the truth shine before men, your fruit to be evident. Turn on the light and people will scurry away if they're doing things that the light exposes. <laughs> but it's primarily our good works and our fruit of the light in our lives. The reason I hate the expression is it's not good enough. Right, exactly. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. Mm -hmm. You just have to have a context in which the gospel is going to be accepted. And it was really introduced by that expression, you are light <coughs> in the Lord. So owning the Lordship, yes, but walking as a child in love. There's a tremendous balance here. Children in love, children in light. And you can't overemphasize or over-demonstrate one or the other in your life. It won't give a balanced presentation for people to respond to. But bulk, the bulk of, I think, of this impression is, as we've already been saying, as David has said, if you don't have the life, or the, the life that you're living, then the words will mean nothing. And I think that's what Adam's getting at back there. We need to live effectively for our words to be effective. And verse 11 goes into that, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Yes. You don't have to commit a crime to avoid jail when a crime goes on. You can be an accessory to a crime. Mm -hmm. You can stand by and let a crime take place and you will be found guilty under the law. Th that's why we have to be very careful that our, our lives are aggressively holy. And I'm agreeing with almost everything I hear about letting my life rebuke evil. There are times when your mouth needs to rebuke evil, okay? Let's not, and I know, I know, Adam, you were not saying that that's not right. Certainly when we're dealing with our children, we have to express what is right and what is evil. Uh, there are times even in neighborhood conversations where people are talking about certain moral issues, and I believe it's my obligation as a believer to say abortion is murder. Homosexuality is sin. You say, well, I'm not brave like you. Well, okay, but to stand there silently may mean that you are expressing that you're in agreement with what they say. Sometimes your life, and I'm with you on this, sometimes your life isn't enough, and we're actually going to get down to a gospel hymn, Awake, O Sleeper, and Arise from the Dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so I think it's very important that exposing the light can be done passively. There are times when it's necessary to speak up for the Lord Jesus and to speak up for holiness. And I, for one, do not allow people in my presence to speak poorly of the Lord Jesus. I feel it's my obligation to correct the fact that he's my Savior and my Lord, and I honor him. Now, you can't stop everybody at work and you know who swears and give them a lecture on what the Bible teaches. That's not your job. That they didn't hire you for that. But I'm thinking more in conversation with neighbors and associates. There's a time to speak up for Christ. Verse 14 shows that it is with a view to conversion. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. That's awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Mm -hmm. So the, the exposing of the light is not, again, we're, I, I don't think we're supposed to be go around and just be moralists, right? Mm -hmm. That'll be repugnant. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but it's with a view to bringing about conviction and conversion. Right. So we are now going to move to D on your outline, a new morality and our relation to the Holy Spirit. B, being filled with the Spirit of God is the key idea in this section. It's walk accurately in wisdom, looking carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So this goes along with the old Socratic idea that the unexamined life is not Mm -hmm. worth living, and we need to examine carefully. Luke uses this term in chapter 1 of his gospel of looking carefully as a researcher into the things that happened about the Lord Jesus that he would later record in his gospel. So it's the painstaking work of an historian in that sense. Uh, Herod tells the wise men, go seek diligently until you find him. So it's hard work. It's, don't, it's, it's a dogged pathway that doesn't stop until it gets to its destination. And so that's the kind of scrutiny our lives should mm-hmm. be under by ourselves mm-hmm. and by the Lord. And the first thing is to pay whatever it costs to devote time to the Lord. That is the way I'm expressing this idea of making the best use of the Mm -hmm. time or redeeming the time because the days are evil. What does it mean to redeem the time? Well, I I think it's the idea of the value that's placed on it, right? That's what redemption is about. Redemption is is trading money for something. Yes. It establishes the value of it. Mm-hmm. Time is a commodity that's slipping through our fingers every moment. Mm-hmm. And we need to see the value of it. Be very sad to lie on our deathbed drawing our last breaths with regret mm-hmm. that time has been wasted. Now this doesn't mean you shouldn't go on vacation. Doesn't mean you can't go out and mow your lawn. But it means that we need a careful evaluation of how our time is spent. Time is a stewardship, I believe, mm-hmm. that God values. And um, I think we need to think about how my time is used. Why does it say um, make best use of the time or redeem the time um, because the days are evil as opposed to because the days are short, because the days are few, because you don't have very many of them? Why is it because the days are evil? What's your thought on that? Well, what follows is, um, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine. So the, the world around us, the day that we live in, would promote a waste of time yeah. in living for self and living for the world, right? So it's this evil day that because of the environment we're in, it's, it's incumbent upon us that to live a purpose life. Otherwise, we will just follow along with the world around us. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a, a wicked time of, of human experience. It's, a, it's the influence of the season in which we live. Mm-hmm. Uh, the condition of it, it will infiltrate the believer's heart and thinking, and time will be wasted in view of eternity. It's not so much that the days are evil. <clears throat> we'll see an evil day coming in the next chapter, but it's the fact that the time that's available to us will naturally tend towards what's around us, which can turn into being evil if we don't make the best use of it. So there should be a moment in your day and in your life and in your month to say, what am I doing with the next bit of time? Uh, I had a study for boards last year, and they, they said, you know, plan out your time and then follow your plan. 
So when you look at this day, what is going to be in this day for God? And you say, well, I got to go to this practice and I got to work and I got to, oh, we got to play games and we got to do this. Uh, that's going to be evil. The day will turn out to be evil if it's not redeemed for God. It's not that the day is evil because this is the day that the Lord has made. We should rejoice and be glad in it. So God likes time. God has put time there for us to use as a mark so that when we're ready to serve him, we can say we used it to the best of our time. And this is really important. I mean, look, at, we're not Luddites here and we're not against social media and we're not against you know, the internet age that we live in, we all need to use it for the glory of God. But people are reporting today that they are busier than they have ever been. But when you crawl under it, you discover that the reason they're busier than they've ever been is because they're wasting most of their life on things that are absolutely meaningless. In fact, I saw a recent study that said if you click away to a, something else when you're reading something, it usually takes about 15 minutes to get back to where you started. That's how much time is wasted simply by clicking away from what you came to do. Now, look, there's things going on in Washington right now that could consume a lot of time. And you can read about impeachment and blah, blah, blah. You can waste a lot of time on that. Do you think that in the kingdom of God, God is going to be interested in what happens, whether Donald Trump is impeached or not? You think so? Don't waste your time on that. Shut it off. Get rid of those apps. You don't need them. What you need to do is you need to discover not only what is acceptable unto the Lord, but then look at verse 17, understanding what the will of the Lord is. How will you do that? Well, that's not something that's done by furrowing our brow and having some Gnostic impression fall from heaven on us. 100% of the will of God for your life is found between the covers of this book. And if it is not expressed directly, it is expressed principially, by principle. Everything God wants you to know and everything he wants you to do is found right here. So what I'm saying is, turn off the electronics and stick your nose back in the book. God will bless you for that. And that will be a life that is really pleasing to him and it will be a blessing to you. This is a strong word for redeem. Paul otherwise uses it only in Galatians, where he talks about um, he redeemed us uh, from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us, or uh, this, that God sent his son into the world in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son to redeem us from the curse of the law. So as we learned from Phil the other week, this is exagorazo, which means not only to be bought, but a one-way ticket out of the slave market never to be sacrificed or returned. No um, changing one's mind. Mm -hmm. No concessions made. Once this thing is purchased, it's God's and it's sacrosanct. And I think we need to think of our time yeah. that way. Uh, you know the old, the story of the old ditty, only one life will soon be passed, only what, what's done for Christ will mm -hmm. last. C.T. Studd wrote that. C.T. Studd, his father was uh, tremendously wealthy. He was born in Britain in the 1870s, 80s, um, went to Eton, went to Trinity College, Cambridge, was a professional cricket player, but came to know the Lord through uh, Sankey and Moody, actually. Mm -hmm. And he left the world of education. He left the world of business. He left the world of cricket and sport, and he became a missionary in China. And while he was in China, he was one of the Cambridge Seven who opened up the inner mission to the heart of Africa. And he wrote a long poem, which you can look up on the internet. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee, 
how happy, oops, I, I blew my lines here, and when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. That's redeeming the time. And let's, yes, move as you have already, Dan, into the next section, which is giving up our ideas and pursuing the will of God. Uh, you pretty much summarized that for us. I'll accept your idea that the will of God is between the two black covers mm. of the Word of God. Uh, the will of God was seen in a very lofty way in chapter 1. It is the will of God, the purpose of God, to head up all things in Christ. That's the big picture. Mm-hmm. I think the will of God in this chapter is our obedience to his word and yes. understanding what we ought to do, how we ought to walk. And that is not a mystical thing. It is not something that comes through uh, Ouija boards or tarot cards or any sort of... And some people treat the Bible in that way, by the way, if you think it's far-fetched. Um, I think the Bible is only an accurate guide when it is taken in context. Mm-hmm. And its intention is what the Spirit of God wrote. Amen. Speaking of the Spirit of God, <clears throat> let us go on to this idea now of being filled with the Spirit of God. How do we distinguish being indwelt by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit? Well, clearly, being indwelt by the Spirit is what happens at conversion. I've often pointed out that, you know, there's the real estate sign that you see, and underneath it there's a little sub-sign that hangs. It says, immediate occupancy. That means you can move right in. Well, that's exactly what God did with the Holy Spirit when you and I were saved. Uh, The Holy Spirit moved right in. I'm glad he did. But you and I need enabling, empowering, sanctifying grace every day of our life. And so this is a very important thing. Um, We need to allow him to have room to work in our life. I think most of us have heard the illustration of trying to live in a house that is jammed full of furniture. You can be there, but there's no room for you to operate. It's only to the degree that all of the excess baggage is thrown out and the person is given room to breathe and to live that you can actually function in that house. I think that is so true of my life. There's a lot of garbage in there and the flesh is pernicious and it wants to take up every square inch. But I need to experience this Uh, exit of superfluous things and allow the Holy Spirit to have his full function within me. The idea of filling is, as you say, when something takes control of me. Mm -hmm. I can't have more of the Holy Spirit. I was given the whole spirit, if if I can put it that way, it's conversion. And if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his, Romans 8, right? But the Holy Spirit sure can have more of me. Mm -hmm. He's in me and I want him to fill me in the sense of I want him to take control of my life. I want him to empower me. I want to be doing what he wants me to do and how he wants me to do it. So when I am swept along by him, then I am, in the Bible sense, filled by him. And we're not left to guess what that looks like, because the whole rest of my chapter in the first part of Scott's is exactly what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit of God. It has nothing to do with speaking in tongues or making mystical utterances or saying profound things. It simply has to do with the following. Communicating, singing, praising God, and submitting to one another. Submitting to one another is then fleshed out husbands, wives, children, parents, employers, employees. So it's the day-to-day 
common, everyday Christianity that we're talking about here. That's being filled with the Spirit. Does this section show that it really affects the whole person as well? We have the idea of the mind, you know, spiritual songs. We have the idea of the body singing. And we have the idea of the heart. So really, a person who's filled with the Spirit, his entire being is going to be affected. Isn't that why he contrasts it with being drunk with wine? Mm-hmm. Right? So a person that's, that's uh, intoxicated with alcohol, it affects their mind, it affects their behavior, it affects their singing, it affects their, 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 uh, their whole persona, right? Their whole person. And so that's why he's contrasting. He says, uh, just as on a bad way, intoxication uh, takes control of a person, the believer should be taken control of by the Holy Spirit. And just practically speaking, the intoxication of some substance, whatever sort it is, will affect every area that we're going to see is benefited by being filled by the Spirit. Uh, It's not just a little light statement about social drinking and then the potential to become an alcoholic if you don't control yourself. If you become controlled by the substance, Mm -hmm. all these aspects of your life will be messed up, just plainly put that way. But being controlled by the Spirit through understanding the will of God, by understanding the Word of God, being light as unto the Lord, all that will affect every avenue of our lives for His honor and really practically for our good and others, the people Mm -hmm. we relate to. So I I spelled out some of these points of contrast because this is all intended, I think, the walk of a person, the speech of a person, the singing of a person and the acting of a person are all definitely influenced by alcohol. And those same things are influenced in a very, very different direction by the Spirit of God. But it's still an inside influence taking control of you. In this case, a very wholesome one. How do we address one another in psalm hymns and spiritual songs? I I don't expect that in between the meetings that I'm going to come up and start singing to you. Um, I hope not, and you hope not. Um, what, what, does this, what does this mean? It's the only place in the Bible I know of where this kind of an expression is used. Well, my, my three words here are <clears throat> spiritual songs, hymns, are things that codify Scripture, edify the saints, and unify mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget the fourth one, glorify God. Yes. So that's all stated here in these. This is the idea of congregational singing, and singing to each other different kinds of songs. We might sing to each other, and these are coming off the top of my head, uh, faint not Christian, right? That's an exhortation to each other. Fight the good fight with all thy might. Mm -hmm. So we're exhorting each other through song. This is not just intended for the sweet music, but it's intended that the message come across in a very Mm -hmm. powerful emotional way. Mm -hmm. We might sing, guide us, O thou great Jehovah. So now we are singing to the Lord as his people. We might sing in thanksgiving to God as we glorify him. Glory to thee, thou Son of Mm -hmm. God most high. All praise to thee. Brethren, let us join to bless Jesus Christ, our joy Mm -hmm. and peace. These are the kinds of songs that meet the criteria. It must codify truth. Theologians, in the good sense, I'm using that word, should be writing the lyrics, not 22-year-old guitar pickers, Mm -hmm. if I can be so crass as to say that. We need to codify truth in a proper way. So certain hymns pass muster and certain ones don't. Paul said to the Corinthians there in chapter 1 Corinthians 14 that even the choice of a psalm, a hymn, was for the purpose of edifying the others. 
So I think that's something of what we're getting at here. It'll build up your fellow believer. We also have the normative practice in prayer, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not a legalist, and I'm not here to tell you exactly how you need to pray, but I can tell you what the normal New Testament pattern is, and it's this. We speak to God the Father in the name of the Son, and I think that's a practice that has been maintained for a lot of years among us. I think it ought to be retained because I do believe it's a scriptural principle. Although it, I agree, I 100% agree. A positive pattern guy, I agree 100% with that. But interestingly, the singing is to the Lord. It is. And we actually do follow that practice as well, which some yeah. people see as an inconsistency. No. Anyway, we only have 12 minutes left. Much more could be said about that. But we are going to move into the last section. The accurate, wise, spirit-filled walk means submission in the extended family, is how I mm-hmm. put it, which I'm including slaves and masters there as well. Mm-hmm. But let us now talk about the, what this great section says about husbands and wives and where it heads, that mystical union. And maybe I shouldn't use the word mystical, but I'm using the mystery in the sense of a Bible mystery of Christ and the church, which is from before the foundation of the world. This is God's big picture. Evolution can't explain where males and females come from. Mm-hmm. Males and females, how, I mean, we won't get into that subject, but there's no explanation for how two entirely different organisms of the same species can have complementary mm-hmm. roles and complementary functions. And yet, God had that in mind, even in his animal creation, but certainly in the human creation, and especially in marriage. And that really, when we see the big picture, makes the truth here much, I think, easier to understand and adopt. <clears throat> This, this whole section contains words that are actually anathema uh, to society today and, in fact, maybe in the near future be defined as hate speech. But we, we begin with this idea at the end of verse um, 17, is it, where we are talking about submitting, no, verse 21, I'm sorry, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, actually, I, I wrote myself a little note about this. It says, if I don't submit to others, I'm actually disgracing Christ. This issue of submission is not an optional theme in, the, in, um, in Christian truth. This actually touches the person of Christ. Headship is one of the most important things to God because it's how he relates to his son and how his son relates to us. So we've met headship before in this epistle. We talked Mm -hmm. about that idea of all things being headed up in Christ in chapter 1. He is head over all things to the church in chapter 1. And so the headship of Christ is a very, very precious thing to God. Mm -hmm. It's as important as lordship. Mm -hmm. Now, lordship is when I have the obligation to obey him as my master. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking up to my lord. Headship is more the Lord looking down on me and seeing me as his responsibility. Seeing that my prospering, my nurturing, my cherishing, uh, 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 being that way, I mean, sorry, let me start over, that that I am taken care of, that Mm -hmm. my needs are met. This is a place where it's okay to talk about my needs because my head cares about me Mm -hmm. as part of the body, right? And so he is going to take responsibility for. So I think the headship that is expressed here where husbands are head of their wives is 
a, 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 to be Christ-like now, a responsibility of them to make sure that their wives have their needs, needs met. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> some women can protect themselves very well. They might be good at karate. Some, uh, some, and women can be extremely competent in every area. They may do a lot of things. They may do a lot of things. Men must do them. That's the difference. Women may open doors for men, but men must open doors for women. Okay, this is, this is a verse about chivalry. Mm-hmm. Women can look after themselves. Men must look after women and children. It's a responsibility of headship. So this doesn't demean women, but it raises men to a whole uh, new level of responsibility that many of us wish we could shirk from. What happens in the marriage, what happens in the family, what happens in the work is laying at the feet of the male. That is how God's hierarchy is set up. Many of us will recognize the name Howard Hendricks. He is quoted as saying regarding the husband, he's not always right, but he's always responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a weighty one for us that are husbands here to carry. But just back up to this this term, submission, or the wives submitting. Uh, I think maybe that's what you're referring to, Dan, might become hate speech, even within our yeah. culture someday. We're close. Uh, it certainly seems to be demeaning to women. But let's not forget that the first mention of submission in our New Testament is the Lord Jesus himself in Luke's Gospel in the home of Joseph and Mary. He put himself under their leadership. And so it's not a small thing at all for a woman to be called on this way. So you've got her responsibility and you've got his responsibility. But I'm just going to go back to Howard again and say, yes, the husband's not always right. And our wives make sure we understand that at times. But he is always responsible. Yeah, and headship is so fundamental. I'm quoting somebody else here that it's even found within the Godhead. Because the head of Christ exactly. is God. I'm sorry, but however you know you would tease that out, at the same time, there's something between God mm-hmm. and the Lord Jesus that reflect headship. And therefore, this is a crucial issue to be understood. So, I'm sorry. So, marriage in the New Testament is elevated, isn't it, to a, to a higher bar, a higher level. So headship was in Genesis 1 and 2. When God established marriage, there was, there was headship, right? The man had the responsibility, the woman uh, supporting. So there was that concept of headship. But it's not really until here in the New Testament that we see that marriage was a, is patterned after Christ and his church, which would have been completely an, a foreign concept in the Old Testament, Right? So when you come to the New Testament, actually we get a maybe a richer understanding of what marriage is all about and the responsibilities, especially of the husband and the nourishing and the cherishing. Mm-hmm. That that really comes out when you look at it at Christ and his and his view of the church and what he does for the church. Mm-hmm. It really raises the responsibilities of marriage, yeah. both from the woman's side and the man's side, yeah. uh, that we over and above what we had in the Old Testament. Just a little more on this concept of <clears throat> submission, as, as it's called, or hupotasso, hupotasomai, if you will, in the Greek, okay? It isn't so much under orders as it is under order, mm-hmm. or order under. God has designed his entire universe, just as he himself is in the Godhead as a hierarchy. There is a place and a role for everyone. 
If you have a hockey team, you've got two forwards, you've got the two defensemen, you've got a center, and you've got a goalie, if I'm correct. Everyone is indispensable because they're all different roles. If everyone shows up and is a left wing, you don't have a team. And four or five of them are expendable. You can get rid of them. But nobody's expendable if everyone is under order. In creation, that's how it is. Among animals, the pecking orders are established. In a body, every member is essential unless someone wants to be a duplicate of someone else. Then they're expendable. But if they're in the role God has chosen, then God sees that as a beautiful thing. There is always order. There is always arrangement. There is always hierarchy in everything God designs. And our role is not to minimize the fact that we have a personal one-to-one relationship with God, but to realize that that needs to be carried farther in our lives as we enter into community. Mm-hmm. That community could be the assembly. That community it could be family. It could be marriage. It could be neighbor. Anything that I am involved with other people will have a headship principle behind it. And that is something that should be carried out in the assembly and it should be carried out in the family. And God delights in it. So let's see ourselves as essential members in a superstructure that God has ordained with Christ at the head. So the metaphors here are two. Number one, as we saw at the beginning here in verses 22, 24, and 33, The husband is the head of the wife because Christ is the head of the church and the savior of the body. The the church submits to Christ and wives therefore should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, the second metaphor isn't so much Christ as a bride, the, the church as a bride rather, but the church as a body. And so that's rationale number two under B near the bottom of the page. Christ nourishes and cherishes Oops, I left the word loves in there. The assembly as his body. And this is just the general principle that a person, you know, love your neighbor at yourself. Mm -hmm. This assumes self-love in the sense of self-care and self-concern and self-maintenance. It is not a psychological concept of self-love in terms of what we hear today. It's going to be just the normal way that we care for our bodies. If our wives are seen as our own bodies, then we will care for them in the same way. I've often tried to just picture the audience to whom this was first written. Most of us here today had the privilege of being saved and then looking for a godly spouse. Most of us had that privilege in that order. But I have to assume that a good number of the people that Paul wrote to were married before they were saved. And a lot of them probably got linked with somebody that they probably could have thought, yeah, I wish I hadn't done this. What Paul wrote to them would make those marriages tremendously Christ-honoring. One of the things that just makes my stomach turn, and I've heard it in relation to even young believers after a few years of marriage, well, God would want me to be happy, wouldn't he? And they're talking about bailing on their marriage. I just feel sick in my stomach, and I feel like slapping a person like that up the side of the head, very frankly. Uh, these people, most a good number of them likely didn't know anything about what real marriage was and were probably ready to walk. Christ intervened, saved them, and now their marriages could honor Christ. How much more so those of us that came into these bonds with tremendous privilege of finding mm-hmm. a saved partner. Let's uh, listen. This is church truth. 
We generally talk about church truth as the things that define all the distinct marks of an assembly. If these marriages aren't wholesome, the local assembly is going to fall accordingly. So just as a final comment here, the structure of this section is interesting, and we haven't perhaps t taken the time to explain it all. You can see, though, that the wives begin and end the section, so this is going to be a mm -hmm. chiasm. You know that. That's good. And so the, the, the first statement, wives be subject. The last statement, see that she reverence her mm -hmm. husband. In the middle, everything is really more directed to the men. Mm -hmm. oh. And it's not to lead, it's to love, because they're too in submission in this hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Not to obey their wives, that's not how it works. But they are in submission to the concept of hierarchy, and they are accepting of the role of responsibility. And they are to be self-sacrificial servant leaders. That's how a submissive person works in a hierarchy. And so the challenge to the males here, to men or to husbands, is are we willing to lay down our lives? Are we willing to be the savior of the marriage? Are we willing to sacrifice everything? Are we willing to be completely faithful? And do we have hopes and aspirations for our wives? Do we have goals that we are helping her to achieve? She is perfectly competent and capable on her own. Any single sister, obviously, perfectly capable and competent on your own. But when God puts two together, hierarchy comes into play. Headship mm. begins to work. And now the responsibility lies with the male. So are we taking it or are we shirking it? Most of this country's problems are due to males who shirk responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we should not be among them. So the great secret of all this, or the great summary of all this, is the last sentence of the chapter, right? That mm -hmm. if we love our wives as ourselves, then submission is not going to be onerous or difficult. Right. The reason that some women, and I'm going to stick up for sisters or women, at least in society, one of the reasons that submission has been so hard is because men have been so unloving. And we have to see that there's mm -hmm. guilt in both directions. And uh, I know it's easy to pick on women and say, well, we're just living in a society where women are not submissive anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, it's probably because we're living in a society where men don't love as Christ loves. Mm -hmm. And so this is a really a recipe for a long and happy marriage, really. Love sacrificially and submit obediently and blessing will follow. And remember, it's not about us, either her or him. It's about Christ. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My father-in-law had an expression that he used when talking to people that were having some difficulty. He would just ask them in their Christian marriage, does it matter to you that it matters to Christ? Because that's the dimension that makes it worth fighting for. Well, thank you. That was a long chapter. We <coughs> sort of got through it. There's a lot of things we could have said, but we trust that the Lord will use what was said and the things that we did consider. Amen.